So just to recap a little bit of the theme of the book that we looked at last week, uh, the theme is looking at the fear of the Lord and how after Israel had come back out of exile, after they had rebuilt the temple for the second time, and things were not really going as well as they wanted. Things were okay. They were back in the land. They had the temple, but they were still under Persian rule. And it was basically a time of apathy where the people are thinking, Lord, you've done some for us, but what have you done for me lately? And they started just... They weren't worshipping false gods yet, but they were just taking God's worship not seriously. They were profaning the altar. We saw last week how they were okay to offer blind animals, lame animals on the altar, which just shows that they were in a state where they were fine to go through the outward forms of worship, to just go through the motions, but they weren't truly giving God their best. And so we talked about last week, that call to take worship seriously, that God calls us as we worship him, as we pay attention to his word, as we sing, to truly give him our best, to take his worship seriously, because verse one, or chapter one, ends saying, "For God is a great king, and his name is to be feared among the nations." So this is going to continue in chapter two. The two big topics is first going to be taking a sort of pastoral leadership, you could say, seriously, taking leadership seriously, and then taking family seriously. Two things which the Lord has appointed, um, in a sense, authority and. His churches and authority and families, and both of these institutions, church and family, had become corrupt. So we're going to look at what, how he rebukes the people for not taking these seriously. So it starts off verse 1. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. So specifically talking about these priests, leaders of the people. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. So here's the warning. The challenge for them is you need to listen up, give ear, really listen to what I'm about to say, and take it to heart. And how often do we, we maybe kind of listen, but we don't take it to heart. You know, even as we've heard the word preached this morning, were we really listening? And are we going to really take it to heart? Like how often do we even reflect on what we've heard um, later on in the day or what we've read in God's word in the morning to really take it to heart and seek to apply it to our lives. That's an important call for us, just as an aside. And this call really to give glory to God's name. We listen to him. We seek to apply it to our life that he would be pleased, that his name would be held in high esteem among all the peoples. But here's the warning. Uh, if you don't do this, basically if you continue in this way of polluted worship, you continue in this way of sort of a profane religion, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Even the good things in your life will not be blessings to you. Uh, this idea of cursing is kind of just a holistic displeasure from the Lord. If you think of Deuteronomy 28, where it lists the blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, it's really just comprehensive, everything going poorly. And although in the New Covenant there's a change that a lot of this sort of idea of blessing and cursing is more spiritual now, and it's not as... Um, perfectly tied to physical things that happened, still it's an idea of God's displeasure. And it says it's because you don't take it to heart. Uh, they, they've added not only are they, they have this false worship, but they've added to it a hardness of heart that doesn't repent at the Lord's rebukes. He says, I've already rebuked your blessings, and they should have noticed and turned from what they were doing, seeing the Lord's displeasure. And he continues, I will rebuke your descendants, and this is like one of the, I think, wildest verses in scripture. And spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts. 
Uh, if you had ever asked someone, does God ever say he'll spread refuse on people's faces? That's a really uh, shocking and descriptive verse. Um, but he says it's the refuse of your solemn feast. This is probably referring to the intestines of the animals that they had sacrificed. And it's almost as if God's saying, you're willing to offer to me corrupt worship, half-hearted, defiled worship. Like, it's going to come right back at you. You want to offer to me this offerings of corrupt sacrifices? I'm going to, like, make that blow up in your face because this does not please me. You're just going through the motions does not please me. And um, when he says, I'll rebuke your descendants, some uh, wonder what the proper interpretation of this is. It could just be, I will corrupt your seed. And some people think it might actually just refer to the physical seeds, like your harvest won't be fruitful, as we've seen in other Old Testament curses, or just that I'm not going to bless your descendants for this, your children that come after you, um, as God has a covenant with the generations of priests. It wasn't just like we have where anyone can kind of become a pastor. In the priesthood, it was generational. You bore the line down if you were of the line of Levi. Uh, and one will take away with it. Uh, it's almost like saying, if you take all these entrails from the animal out to the trash, it's almost like I'm going to take you out with it. Verse 4, then when you've seen my punishment and judgment against you, you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. And that this is, I think, the heart of this first little paragraph here. God made a covenant with Levi. And God specifically in the Old Testament he redeemed the tribe of Levi and said, you guys are going to be a tribe for me. And the kind of trade-off here is that Levi didn't get an inheritance of land. Levi, like the other tribes, wasn't allotted a particular portion of land, but they were scattered throughout all Israel. And God said, but here's the deal. I will be your inheritance. You get me in a special way that others don't. They had access to the Lord's worship and word in a closer relationship than other people had. And so he had a covenant with them, says, you will serve me and I will be your inheritance. And so this, and this covenant of service to God, being dedicated to God is so corrupt. They're not taking it seriously that God says, I've redeemed you to serve me and to serve in my worship particularly. Uh, so that's just the covenant of Levi that's being broken. And now he ex explicates this a bit, a bit in verse 5. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So, like, priests, if you will serve me in faithfulness as I've instructed you in my word, this is going to be life to you. This is going to be peace for you. This is going to be a wonderful blessing. And he says, the priests had in the past... Um, Levi and his descendants, they feared God. They were reverent before his name. They took their role seriously as representatives of the people to pray for the people, to sacrifice on behalf of the people, to teach the people. They were doing this. And this is, again, the ideal here. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. This is a beautiful description of what God would have the priests do. Um, to not just be godly men that walk before God in his fear, but to also be people that speak truth, that don't have unrighteousness coming out of their mouths. They don't have half-truths. They don't teach wickedness. And they actually walk a godly life. They walk in peace with God and men. They walk in an equitable way, in integrity, honesty, righteousness. And to turn people away from iniquity. 
And this is part of the priest's role in the Old Testament is that by being the ones who deliver the law to the people, the people are hopefully stayed from wickedness. They're able then to not sin by ignorance. Because a lot of the sin, even in our day, is just people don't know what God requires of them. And some of God's commands to us, they're not as maybe innate to our conscience. And we actually just need to be instructed to instruct our consciences in the ways of what God would have for us. And I was just thinking by way of application on these verses, just a picture of even godly church leadership today. Uh, What a beautiful picture this is. And for us here at Grace Fellowship, one of the most important things that's going to happen here in the next year or two is that we're going to be hopefully, Lord willing, selecting men to lead this congregation as shepherds over the flock. And uh, we don't become, in a sense, our own church separate from Harvest until we have elders, uh, at least two, hopefully more. And so this is something we all need to be thinking about. Uh, For one, in the sense of who are godly men among us that kind of reflect this, men who fear God, men who, when they talk to you, you can tell they're speaking truth. Men who um, have peace in their relationships and seem to have an integrity in their lifestyle and who seek to turn people away from sin, who are strong enough to lovingly um, admonish someone when they need correction. So a twofold, one, we need to be looking out for these men among us. And two, um, all of us should be seeking to walk in this ourselves as much as we can, man or woman. Um, These are beautiful characteristics that we would do well to Look at to look at our godliness, our speech, and um, our life, and how we're, we're ministering to people. We're all called to give an encouraging word. We're all called to admonish, uh, if the case may be. So I think this is particularly relevant for us, and also for us to be in prayer that God would give us a godly leadership, uh, shepherds after His own heart, people who love God's flock more than they love status or notoriety, and who delight to teach the truth. Uh, any comments or questions so far? Yeah. And I'm just wondering here, with the priests, do they know, you know, these people, when they come, they bring their offering of a defective lamb. Were the priests responsible to say that's not acceptable? Hmm, good question. Uh, my thought would be yes. I can't think of any verse particular to back it up, but I would have thought they, there's a sense in which they were, would have been sort of gate, gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to check over that. Yeah, no, yeah, interesting thought. I'm not sure. So in contrast, like, we go back to um, Eli with Samuel. Mm-hmm. You know, they were being... Right. ...demanding the wrong part of the sacrifice before it was cooked properly, and so they were corrupt groups. Yeah. In that matter. I just, as I'm reading this, thinking, okay, you know, people were offering defective sacrifices. So was the priest supposed to say that's not acceptable, so we're not going to offer that? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thought. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think what we've seen here is that both the priests are culpable with the people and they're all doing it. <laughs> so it's like uh, whether they could have actually guarded against it or not, I'm not totally sure. But they were just as vile. They were giving corrupt offerings. The people were giving corrupt mm-hmm. offerings. So they were really just as yeah. filthy here. Yeah. God was just explaining that he had chosen the Levites. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like you of all people ought to be mm-hmm. like aware and dealing with this and yeah that's a really good point about Eli's sons who God rebukes Eli saying you didn't restrain your sons in their ministry and you let them defile my worship and use it for self-indulgence and this is part of the danger of uh, this is a bit of a tangent but a part of a danger of a ministry that comes through bloodlines 
is that it wasn't based on qualifications. And I don't know why God did it that way, but it's difficult. But we've even seen that in the history of um, our churches in the 17, 1800s. There was a big, big problem of patronage in the churches where wealthy people in the church would say, hey, I'll give you this building if you make this guy who I like a minister and he gets a good salary, but maybe he's not even converted. Or people putting uh, their nobles, putting their children into places of pastoral authority, and they called it simony. Uh, The sin of simony, if you think of Simon in the book of Acts, who says, I want to purchase the Holy Spirit. So they, that's kind of been the term in church history we've used for people that try to buy positions of church leadership, the sin of simony. That's sort of aside the point. Um, and this continues. So for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's okay. So here, this is really interesting because we often don't realize that the priests and Levites had a teaching role in Israel. We understand they were given to sacrifice and serve in the temple. But if you think of how many Levites there were, one-tenth of the population approximately would have been a Levite, and there was only one temple. And so if, if you remember um, Zechariah in the New Testament, it's like, oh, it's my turn to serve in the temple. That's super exciting. So it's like, what were the priests and Levites doing throughout the rest of Israel if they couldn't be offering sacrifices? Because you could only sacrifice at the temple. And there's not many verses of it, but both... Um, Leviticus 10.11 and Deuteronomy 33.10 talk about the duty of the Levites to teach the people the commands and law of God. And so they actually had a a very important instructional role among the peoples. And this relates into a really interesting idea of synagogue worship. So the synagogue were these sort of Jewish churches, if you will. They could assemble them if they had 10 men in an area. And we see this by Jesus' time. There's, we're not sure there, if there's an official institution of the synagogue in the Old Testament, but by Jesus' time, there's synagogues everywhere, which we kind of see it was people would come together, someone would read a portion of God's word, expound it, and they would pray. And we see Jesus, and in the book of Acts, they're always teaching in the synagogues. So there's somehow developed in the Old Testament these basically churches, and our worship today is not based on the worship of the temple, but we actually model our services off the synagogue service. And our services of worship are remarkably similar to what synagogue services would have been like. And that's kind of where we get the institution for our corporate worship services. Um, We have a hint of maybe this development in, I forget the exact verse, but there's a reference in Leviticus to on the Sabbath day calling sacred assemblies. That is holy assemblies. So we think from that idea that on the day of worship, you should call together a holy assembling of people together. That's where we see the synagogue system develop. And it's the same thing for us. That's why we think it's so important to worship on the Lord's day, because we've been called together to be a sacred assembly as we assemble together in holiness to praise the Lord. Another kind of aside, but I think it's helpful to know a bit of the roots of our worship here with the synagogue. Uh, any questions on that? I'm not an expert on synagogues or anything, but. All right. And so he says, verse eight, you have departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have, again, this, we saw this phrase earlier, corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. 
So this is the danger. If you have leaders that don't know God's word and don't teach God's word accurately, it says you've caused many to stumble at the law. You've caused many to stumble at my word. And at the end, it says you've shown partiality in law. I think this is a real warning for us in that there's a lot of ways to teach God's word in a corrupt way. It doesn't say they didn't teach the law. It says you caused them to stumble at the law and have shown partiality in it. So if we think like, you know, showing partiality and justice, like, ooh, I'll favor this. Uh, we can fall into the temptation of favoring certain teachings of scripture over others, favoring certain interpreters, favoring the parts we like, minimizing the parts we dislike. And it's really this idea of picking and choosing. Uh, the, like famously, your old president Thomas Jefferson cut out all the parts of the New Testament he didn't like and made his own Bible of the teachings of Jesus that he thought were authentic, that rang true in his heart, and cut out everything he didn't like. Um, actually, two weeks ago, we were talking about this in the young adults group, just trying to reflect on ourselves, like, what parts of scripture do we feel like we kind of cut out and ignore because they make us uncomfortable and we're not sure what to do with them, so it's easier just to ignore them and keep reading. And just something to challenge ourselves with. But how much more ought this to be something for a leader of God's people to teach uh, that they should be seeking the word of God at his mouth, as verse 7 says. They should have true knowledge and be acting as a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And that's what Mike was even saying in the message this morning, the duty to bring the message of God uh, and not just be a messenger of your own message, but a minister, anyone who teaches is to be a messenger of God's message, to have his knowledge coming forth. Um, and that the people should seek it. We ought to seek the law of the truth of the mouth of every true messenger of God, and even directly going to his word, the messenger, the messenger Paul, John, Christ himself. We have all of these beautiful messengers to seek the law at. And they, they were exposed. They were contemptible and base in front of the people. They didn't keep God's ways. They showed partiality in law. And let's look at how like they've made people stumble. And just think of all the scandal we see in the church when pastors fall. And when they fall out of the way... It just causes shockwaves throughout the whole church. And many people do stumble then at God's word. How could this pastor, of all people, fall into such sin, to such false teaching? And that's why we always have to be careful, again, thinking of eldership. The Bible emphasizes character over gifting again and again. Integrity, uprightness, humility. These things are more important than just uh, charismatism, winsomeness. Uh, but it's easy to be tricked because uh, it's, we easily get our ears tickled. You know what I mean. So, uh, any other comments, questions? Okay, verse 10. He's uh, transitioning now into the second item. Not taking just leadership seriously, but taking marriage and family seriously. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Yet, uh, why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Uh, this beginning here is variously interpretive what the one father, whether that's referring to God the father or maybe to Abraham as the father of the Jewish people or even Adam as the father of the human race. But either way, the idea uh, is there's a unity. We ought to be together in this. Has not one God created us? Uh, I personally think this is probably referring to Israel as a people. 
Hasn't God chosen us from out of the nations? Hasn't he made us to be a special people unto himself? But you deal treacherously, and definitely take note of this word treachery. It's going to occur, I think, five times in this passage. Deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers. We've heard this profaning idea a lot. Profaning the worship, but now this is going to look into profaning human relationships. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. That's one of the strongest words in the Old Testament for wickedness, abomination. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Uh, That word institution's in italics because that's supplied by the translators. So it really just reads, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy, which he loves. Which is super cool to think about. Uh, The marriage relationship, the Lord calls it his holy. His holy, which he loves. That's a really beautiful language. And it's been profaned. And he has married the daughter of a foreign god. It seems like this um, sin of marrying foreign idolatrous wives was so prevalent that it's almost like you could apply it to the whole people. Judah as a whole, he has married the daughter of a foreign god. He has bound himself to false worship. And he says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so we actually get historical context for what he's talking about here in both Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is written concurrently with Nehemiah's time. And we see in the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah finds out that the people, tons of people have been marrying uh, the women of the land who were idol worshippers and not of the people of Israel when they had moved back into the land. And Nehemiah like freaks out, he rips out his beard and is... Going around, he's just rebuking the people. He's like, how could you have done this? Don't you realize that he says Solomon, who was one of the most blessed people of all, this is what made him fall. You think you're greater than Solomon? That you can withstand your own heart being turned towards idolatry by these foreign wives? He's like, how could you do this? You're going to like lose the Lord's blessing on the next generation. They're not going to know the Lord and we all go back into bondage or whatever. So he takes this really seriously. Uh, And this was a repeat of what had happened in Ezra's time, maybe just 10 years before. And actually in that scenario, Ezra made them all divorce their wives and uh, make the wives and children leave. Uh, Which there's a lot of interpretive issues there that can be figured out um, another side. But he, uh, he doesn't use the word for marriage and he doesn't use the word for divorce in Ezra. So he says, put them away. And he says, these women you've taken to yourselves. So it's maybe something like it wasn't actually marriages. It might have been a sort of concubinage or just taking uh, polygamous people. So lives we're not sure, but uh, the normal language isn't used. But in Ezra, he doesn't make them divorce. He just rebukes them for uh, bringing idolatry into the nation and into their homes. So this is clearly a problem. And uh, we actually have note that the priests were doing this too. And... We see this in the New Testament. It's such a prominent principle to marry in the Lord. That's the call in 2 Corinthians uh, 7, that those who marry ought to marry in the Lord. Because one of the greatest ways the gospel grows and flourishes and advances in the world is through godly families. And as godly offspring, which we're going to see later, are raised up, um, that's largely how the church grows over time, the gospel goes to a new area. We have initial conversion. Then we see families growing 
and flourishing. And so to corrupt the family at the level of parenting and raising can have devastating impacts for the raising of the children later on. And notice here, he's worried because the, the wives have significant impact. And I think we might even testify that in our homes, it's often our mothers that had the greater religious impact on us than our fathers. And so when they are corrupt and idolatrous, wow, that's dangerous and deadly for the next generation. And he says now, this second thing you do. Okay, so the first thing was marrying idolatrous wives. Any other thoughts on that before we go to the second thing? Okay, second thing you do, verse 13, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Uh, There's two different ways people interpret this. I'm not sure which is right. The one may be you kind of cover the, and this is going to reference people who unjustly divorce their lives. Uh, It might be you cover the altar with your tears, but they're sort of crocodile tears, You put on the show and display of emotion, but I'm not going to receive your offering because it's not from a pure heart. Or I might be saying, you cover the altar of the Lord with the tears of these women you've unjustly divorced who are coming and weeping at God's altar. And so I'm not going to regard your offering because of how you've mistreated these women. I think both uh, have merits. Uh, Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness. The Lord watched this. He was there. Between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Here's that idea again, treachery. And like, what is treachery? But when you have a a bond of trust, of a promise together, and to undermine it and sever it. Uh, We think of famous people that committed treachery politically, like a Benedict Arnold or whatever. You're in a position of trust, and yet you undermine it and seek to destroy it from within. And that's what he's talking about, this marriages are like. One that is called to be one, yet one commits treachery and undermines this union and breaks it. It's a terrible thing to occur. And so he's saying, you men here have been dealing treacherously with these wives that the Lord saw you and turned to covenant with. Uh, verse 14, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This wasn't some... Just, we're going to do this casual thing, get married. It's like, no, this is serious. It was a companionship wrought in covenant. A covenant that, um, that choosing one another for our good. And this is actually the only verse we have in all of scripture that talks about marriage as a covenant. Uh, yes, Andrew. Is this talking about like Jewish wives or the foreign wives? No. Uh, this seems to be Jewish wives. Like uh, either their first wives and then they added these foreign wives after, or maybe they're divorcing their Jewish wives in order to take these foreign wives. But it seems to be mostly that this is probably referring to the Jewish wives. Unless, do you see any evidence to the contrary here? No, yeah, if it was to the contrary, it would be interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. <clears throat> At this point, were they not accepting, like earlier, like they had two wives? So is this a point where they stopped having multiple wives or concubines? I'm not sure of how uh, the polygamy sort of fades out. Like, we do see a fading out, but I don't know if there's any decisive break in in their... um, I'm trying to think in the kings. It seems like some of the kings have a lot of wives, other ones don't. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, good question. I don't know. Actually, we definitely don't see it really 
It's still a little bit there in the New Testament, as far as in the culture, but not in the church anymore. But yeah, um, yeah, wife by covenant. So this is a really important verse on marriage, and that it is a covenantal relationship. Where, and this is really kind of based on Genesis two. It's uh, leaving father and mother to cleave to your spouse. So it's this idea of when you cleave together, it's a covenantal cleaving. And he says, um, did he not make them one? And that's that promise at the beginning, that they become one flesh. One flesh. And he says, with a remnant of the spirit. This isn't just a merely physical union. There's something spiritual and deep and soul connecting about this union. And he says, and why did God do this? Why would God create this covenantal relationship meant for companionship? That's really important. Verse 14, it's not just um, for sexual things, not just for children, but for companionship. And that's something the Reformation really brought out afresh that wasn't in Catholic teaching before. Companionship. Uh, But why would he make them one? Because God seeks godly offspring. Kind of what we talked about. Uh, Our confession teaches three purposes for marriage. The first is companionship. The second is the raising up of a godly seed. And the third is for the preventing of sexual impurity and temptation. And in that order. And so if the first um, priority God has for marriage is companionship, you know, it wasn't good for the man to be alone. God made him a helper to help work together, partnership in life, partnership in ministry, partnership in bringing all of creation into the kingdom of God. Uh, That's first. But then second is a godly offspring that God is seeking that he would increase and uh, they're called to increase and multiply to multiply in the church worshipers of God. And Julie and I have talked about this a lot, just in the fact that we often have our priorities for children wrong. It's that we want to have children because they're really cute and really fun. But what if you're a person and I won't name names of someone I'm close to who's like, what if you don't think children are that cute and that fun? And what if you find them kind of difficult and kind of annoying And if you feel like that, then why would you burden yourself with them if you're not maybe necessarily maternal in those sort of ways? And it's because children aren't for us. Primarily, children are for God. Our children are for God. And the responsibility and the beautiful opportunity we have to raise worshipers of God, uh, to create beings that are eternal souls, that can forever give glory to God, that's one of the greatest opportunities and responses you could ever imagine having to disciple and shape a child that will be, uh, Lord willing, a worshiper of him. And we have such hope in this. Uh, We were going to have a baptism today, but we're saying in baptism that these children are going to grow up in the church with the promises of God in their hand under godly teaching and instruction that they might be a godly seed. As we do our responsibility to discipline and admonish, as God would call us to. And just priority-wise, this just has to be our priority in parenting. And I know I'm not a parent yet, but I think this is true because God's word is true. Uh, Too often, the goals can be, I want my kid to just get into a good college, to get a good job. Um, Or even people I've talked to here say, like, I just want my child to marry someone from this (laughs) denomination that we're part of. That's, like, that'll be success as a parent, and I'll breathe my sigh of relief. But we ought not be satisfied, like godliness and um, children that fall into ungodliness, that's the most heartbreaking thing people deal with. Um, That's the saddest thing because that's our ultimate desire is 
a godly seed, not for us, but for God. And to, when we go to heaven, to say, um, like Christ does, I and the children God has given me, and I present them to you, Lord, as an offering. And we, again, kind of like with the sacrifices, we do our best and then trust God with the rest. And we all fail in many ways. And I expect if the Lord grants us children, we'll fail in many, many ways. And so you trust the grace of God and pray and pray and pray. And just have your priority be godliness in the home. Uh, anyone, anyone have anything to add to that? Maybe a parent? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if not. That's one of the things that has blessed me most to realize that, that God can cover all those things that I fail at, yeah, his grace reaches to every part of our life and family. Yeah, Chris. And I think also probably the challenge that a lot of times I think in the culture that we live in, whether you're in the church or out of the church, is that when your kids get to be 16, 17, 18 years old, that they should be independent. And that's true to a point. But you think of all those decisions that are made, whether it's a spouse or whether it's life um, decisions. Mm-hmm. Older person used to say me to me all the time. The most difficult decisions in life at a time when you're really not equipped to make them. Mm-hmm. And I think looking at that and saying, even within a church setting like this, putting as many opportunities as we can out there for mentorship mm-hmm. and put in, in that, those ages that I think sometimes get forgotten. Mm-hmm. And then even looking at it and saying, even creating as many opportunities as we can so that young people can become friends mm-hmm. and meet others with similar convictions in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I encourage to everyone, be praying for the youth group. Be praying that God really does establish godly friendships there and um, it does work in, our, in these kids' lives. That's really important. Because God often seems, just the way he seems to work is that people most often come to a true knowledge of God, a true conversion in their teens or 20s. That seems to be the way it often works. Um, yeah, just see what I, Okay, we don't have much time left, but yeah, and sure. Contrary to that, at 85% are walking away from the terrain. Yeah. So that's a huge Yeah, yeah, it's a challenge to swim upstream of the culture, right? Okay, I'll try to fly through this part on divorce in a couple minutes, even though this is like probably the trickiest part and difficult. But. Um, Take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Youth, For the Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. Uh, this verse, I think, has been taken in a way that has probably hurt people or almost been used to bully people. Uh, and say there's the Lord God hates divorce and that if then divorce has happened, it's like God hates you kind of thing. But this context here is so clear that what God hates is the treachery. It's the treachery. That one person has undermined and committed treachery against another. And a treachery that leads to divorce is a terrible thing to have had happened. And the Lord God hates the treachery. So you can think of two scenarios. One is a treacherous divorce where one person unjustly divorces one. Uh, the, The New Testament does give us... Uh, possibilities for lawful divorces. Our confession teaches this. We teach this as a church that there are times where a divorce would be lawful and not even just allowable, but potentially good and right and helpful in certain circumstances. And God does not hate the divorce in that context. He actually gives allowance for it. But what he would still hate is the treachery that undermined the marriage. But in cases where divorce is unlawful, uh, the divorce itself is the treachery. 
So if you think of God brings two people together in union, like they're sewn together, sometimes a spouse commits an act of sin, uh, particularly sexual sin or abandonment, abuse could be, those sorts of things, that severs that tie so distinctly that there's been a treachery created in the relationship. And then the divorce is just a making legally true what's already happened. A severing by treachery has occurred. But sometimes that hasn't occurred, and one person just says, I want out, and they're actually splitting off is the severing of the relationship. Does that make sense, those two distinctions? Yeah, Maggie. We have some couple friends that have gotten divorced. Uh, mm-hmm. not a ton, but one of them says that his goal and what he believes scripture teaches is that if a couple gets divorced and one one of the half of the couple doesn't want to divorce and other does, that ultimately the goal is always reconciliation. So I'm wondering, like in an unlawful divorce where when one just says I don't want to marry you anymore, mm-hmm. should the goal for the one that was left or for be reconciliation at some point? Or like after divorce or before yeah. divorce? Or I think once you're divorced, I don't think you're allowed to get remarried to that same person. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I don't think the Bible allows remarriage to the same person. Um, but the, uh, so that would be, that's one of the things I'm, I'm talking about here is I think we have sometimes too much erred on the side of be reconciled in the church. And we've convinced people to stay in abusive marriages on this vein of like, no, it's always better to stay married. And we've actually done people the disservice of not saying, this person's cheated on you multiple times and they'll probably keep cheating because that's what the statistics show. You are free and there's no shame in divorcing and it will be good and we need to be actually be more supportive of that. That might be a bit controversial, but I really think we've done people a disservice. By when the, if the Bible says you can get divorced in this circumstance, we ought to say, don't feel ashamed. To receive this as God's mercy to you in this scenario. Um, knowing still that the treachery is still not the way God would want it to be. And um, there's probably a lot more we can say, but we're already over time. Um, but there's lots of good resources. Stuff. If you want some more resources on this subject, um, ask me, but I'll try to point you some good directions. But yeah, let's just all hate the treachery. And uh, oh, the last thing I really want to say is um, take heed to your spirit that none deal treacherously at the end of verse 15. And he says it again at the end of verse 16, take heed to your spirit. And for each one of us, maybe particularly guys, how do we take heed to our hearts and spirits that we do not become those who commit treachery? And this is just the essential of um, to watch lust at its smallest seed form, that we don't allow that to flower such that we end up committing things we never thought we would do. And this isn't just for guys, this is for all of us. We need to watch our hearts that we don't develop um, either like visual sexual attachments to images or relational attachments to people in our life, whether people we work, work with, that creates just that seed of um, a distaste for our own spouse or a dissatisfaction um, because we know that treachery is to be despised. And so we need to take heed to our spirits. We need to pray. And if we are struggling, we need to tell somebody. We need to be open with our spouses about the ways we struggle um, in wisdom, but I, and some people don't agree with this, but I think you have to have full openness in marriage about your uh, temptations and what you struggle with, because I think that's the only way it's going to work long term. Well, again, some people disagree with that. Anyways, this is, I'm always bringing up more things here to do with, um, I just, the last verse is a different topic. It's saying, you've wearied the Lord by saying, 
Um, everyone who does evil is good in your sight. You seem to bless the wicked. And where's the God of justice? This is that Psalm 73 idea. Why are we following you and not being blessed? And these wicked people are being blessed. We're tempted to say the same things. And he actually answers that in chapter 3. So we'll leave it there. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, that's, we mourn over so much uh, damage that's been done in our culture, in our own lives, to people we love. Just treachery. Um, treachery in churches, treachery in marriages. And Lord, we thank you that you're a forgiving God and you're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. You put the solitary in families. Um, you make the barren woman a joyful mother of children. Lord, we ask that in this place you would build strong families, that you would build strong marriages, that you would root out sexual immorality from this church, that you would help this to be a place of openness, uh, where we can seek freedom from sexual sin, where we can guard our hearts, that we not uh, trespass against our spouses, Lord. We pray that you will be near to those who have had difficult or separated marriages in this church, that this will be a place of love and joy for them. We pray for marriages that are in trouble, that you will give mercy and grace and help them to get help. And for marriages that are strong, that you'll make them stronger still and help couples to help other couples. Lord, we pray you'll bless the children of this church. You'll keep them from the world, keep them from sin, that they would be a godly seed, that your hand would be over the relationships in the youth group. Uh, bless Chris and Becky as they exercise leadership there. And we pray that this will be a church where families praise you and where uh, ones without families are welcomed into families and that we all grow together as the family of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.